Please stand with me and take out your Bibles and open to Acts chapter 3. Our reading as well as the content of our sermon will be verses 11 through 26. Acts chapter 3 verse 11 continues in the story of Peter and John going to the temple at the hour of prayer and they had just healed the lame beggar. Let me pick up in verse 11. While he was still clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. But put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed the prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first... God has raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. This ends the reading of God's word. Let's go before the Lord, beloved, and ask for his help. Lord God, we come before you. We ask, Holy Spirit, to descend upon us afresh by way of your word this morning. To appreciate more greatly the salvation we've been given in Christ. Bring to life any among us who are dead in their sins. Sanctify your people by way of your word, we ask. For Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Uh, the lame man. who was laid at the gate called Beautiful, healed by the power of God in the name of Jesus Christ was a miracle that served as a means to an end. That end is Peter's sermon. This, Peter's second sermon. That is the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ where at the forefront at the forefront of this preaching is God's attitude 
toward Christ. Which, by the way, is one of the rudimentary parts of all apostolic preaching. God the Father's attitude towards his beloved son in contrast to the people before whom Peter is preaching and their attitude towards Christ. Showing us how religious human beings, including ourselves, can claim to know and love God and yet believe things about him that are incorrect and actually antithetical to his purposes. Thus the reason there are numerous New Testament warnings given to the church that they not be, what? Deceived. A reminder that as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, um, our thinking, our minds must be aligned to and routinely realigned to the mind of Christ because of a, of, of a looming temptation. And that is the danger to exchange other things for Jesus. That is, placing other things before him. I'm talking to Christians. Could be your career. Exchanged for Christ, having first place. Um, children can oftentimes uh, become idols Parents turn their children into idols. They'll listen to their children before they'll listen to Christ. They're more concerned about their children, what they think, than what they think Christ thinks. That's a looming danger. Um, idleness can be exchanged for Christ. Laziness. Recreation can be exchanged for Christ. M my multimedia fame can be exchanged for Christ. You're a hero in your own mind. Certain doctrines, sound doctrine, can become an idol in exchange for Christ. People come to understand a glorious doctrine in the Bible, and that's all they talk about. That's all they think about. Exchanged for Christ. In a devotional I read this week, by Charles Spurgeon, he raised this question, are there things in your life that you exchange for Christ? May this text reveal any misplaced affections we may have this morning. Now, for this crowd in Acts chapter 3, this crowd of overtly religious people who claim to love and worship God, here they are in the temple at the afternoon hour of prayer, they do not think, nor do they have Jesus in his rightful place. That God, the Father Almighty, 
standing as they were, very close to the line of exchanging the truth for a lie. Because remember, only weeks prior to this scene, they had exchanged a murderer for Christ. They called for a murderer in exchange for Christ. Barabbas, who was in prison, awaiting execution on a Roman cross, they called for him to be set free in exchange of Jesus. That's outlined, or highlighted, I should say, right in the center of this chapter, right in the middle. What is it? Verses 13 and 14. That's the introduction. Now, last time, um, this man who was healed of of congenital lameness, um, he was born a cripple, leaps up. In the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk, and and Peter reaches, reaches down, grabs the man by the hand, and he leaps up, and he continues to leap for joy, praising God. And here, amidst the, the, this uh, group of awestruck onlookers, it provides Peter now another opportunity to preach. What do preachers do? They preach. Simple title of the message, Peter's second sermon. He's ready to bring it. And let me tell you, at the forefront, th- th- this kind of preaching in our day is politically incorrect at the least. (laughs) More commonly, this kind of preaching would be referred to as what we hear now as hate speech. This preaching is bold. This preaching is insensitive. This preaching is offensive. This preaching is harsh preaching, but what it is is simply unvarnished truth. This, in response to a genuine miracle, that is a truly lame man from birth who was truly healed. This didn't happen in the back room somewhere of of, of some healing ministry with some charlatan out front. All the miracles in the New Testament were were public, always confirmed by witnesses, not hearsay. This man was a very public figure. He had a very well-known infirmity from birth. I mean, this guy was a fixture at the gate, beautiful. They knew this man. They knew what he looked like. So the man leaping caused them to be beside themselves nearly. I mean, they're awestruck. So, verse 11, while he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. But when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we had made him walk? Now, there were two erroneous ideologies um, in this day. Uh, One was a pagan legend that spoke of men who had supernatural powers to heal. That was nonsense. That was the myth of, of men who were believed to be divine. The other 
came from Jewish tradition. And that is the belief that some men were so holy that God was obligated to, to grant their every request. Okay, so with those two erroneous views in mind, if you notice, he said, it's not by our power or piety. Okay, we, we don't heal anybody. It's not by my power, says Peter. It's not by my piety. No, the hand was mine that lifted the man up. The power was not mine. And then he launches into this sermon. Again, to prove that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. This miracle serves as a means to an end to preach Christ as Israel's Messiah. He's preaching to Jews in the temple court, beloved. So the most remarkable feature of Peter's first sermon is also the major feature of his second, and that is Christ-centered biblical exposition. Providing his heroes, hearers, here's the first lesson for us, this preaching provides his hearers with a proper hermeneutic. Okay, that is hermeneutic, the art and science of biblical interpretation. This is the key that opens the door of interpretation. That is how to understand the Old Testament. That's our first lesson applicable to us. Notice how the sermon begins, verse 13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. He goes back to their hero of the faith. You're all amazed, you Jews, at this power. Let me go back to your hero of the faith, Abraham, the God of our forefathers. He's behind everything that you see here. He is at work. This is not a novel religion. This is not some new movement as you hear the name of Jesus being proclaimed. All of this that you see flows out of that which was promised to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, promises of old. Now, when you get to verse 25, notice he talks about the covenant which God made with your fathers. And here was the promise to Abraham. And in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And we who are here this morning are participants in that promise. Saying in effect, the way you read the Bible is covenantally. That's how you read the Bible. That is in context to God's redemptive promise to sinners, that is to save a people for himself throughout the world. That's a very cohesive, consistent hermeneutic. That's what he's pointing out. That is God has one plan for one people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That is all the families of the earth. Verse 25. Conclusion. You don't want to read your Bible dispensationally. That is the convoluted invention of two plans of salvation. One for ethnic Jews at the last seven years of human history and one for Gentiles. That's nonsense. It's very 
confusing and a very incohesive hermeneutic, and that hermeneutic has been messing up American evangelicals especially for the last 100 plus years. Period. So, what he's saying. What you see with Abraham, what you heard from Moses, as he goes on to talk about, uh, what you saw in David, we heard last time, and what you heard from Samuel and all the prophets that followed him, what you see now, Peter says, all of those things were shadows in types. Here, the fulfillment of it all, as it was written. Christ, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Father in heaven who sent his promised Messiah, same God, same plan. That's what you see happening here. Amen? Verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified, notice, his servant Jesus. That's very interesting language. His servant. In Scripture, beloved, in Scripture, we read of people glorifying God. We don't read of God glorifying people. Amen? Here, God glorifies not his king, not his prince, but his servant. Language again that comes from the Old Testament. A promise that came through as Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, the so-called servant songs of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 42, 49, 50, 52, and 53. Who said that? Who said that? Amen. The coming of Jesus in his lowly incarnate state, Yahweh's suffering servant. Isaiah 49.3 speaks of God being glorified in his servant. We read this. You are my servant in whom I will show my glory. Here in Acts 3, we read of God glorifying his servant. What do we see? A reciprocal relationship between the father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and his servant, i.e. his son. A reciprocal love relationship. Do you remember what Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer the night before he was crucified? In John 17, verse 1, we read this. Lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your servant, your son. That your servant, your son, may glorify you. Beautiful. So that's how we understand scripture. That's how we're to understand, that's how we are to understand scripture. They, these Jews, did not rightly understand scripture. So we move now from how to understand scripture, the proper hermeneutic, the key of understanding the Bible is Jesus, the promised Christ. Genesis 3.15, forward. The hermeneutical key. Next, those who did not understand the scriptures like that, 
notice, are charged. This is an indictment. Peter moves to speak of their guilt. Notice he declares, this God, the only God, has glorified his servant Jesus. The one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. Remember that? Pilate said, I find no guilt in this man. He's innocent. As a matter of fact, you want him dead? I wash my hands of this situation. What will you have me do with him? Crucify him. Well, you know, it's custom that I could release one man. Give us Barabbas. Who was supposed to go to the cross. You disowned the whole, notice, you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Tender, loving preaching, isn't it? (laughs) Oh, he'll get to the tenderness. He'll get to the love. You don't preach the gospel without preaching bad news, my friends. There's a foolish thought today that you just preach the good news. You can't preach the good news without preaching the bad news. There is no good news unless you understand the bad. He's laying it out. He's bringing it. So on the basis of historical events, he's very precise. He's being very direct. Peter points his finger. He sticks it in their face, and he says, you disowned the holy and righteous one. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you in place of this holy and righteous one. See, they did not recognize the scriptures. They did not recognize Jesus as the one who fulfills the scriptures, or at at least they refused to. The holy and righteous one, that, that his very person and power proved him to be. I point this out often because I want you to know this. Do you remember who it was that first rightly identified the holy and righteous one? I can't hear today. Demons. 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 Without the shadow of a doubt, knew who he was. Those who once resided in his holy presence before they were cast out of heaven. Fallen angels. Mark 1.24, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Remember that? They recognized the one thrice holy. Not merely holy, holy, but Holy, holy, holy. Isaiah. Isaiah, in the year of King Isaiah's death, saw the Lord sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted, the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. One called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. 
Isaiah began to come undone at the seams. He put his hand over his mouth in response. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of an unclean people. He came undone. My eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. That was written 700 years B.C., 700 in some years before Christ. And when we get to John's gospel, chapter 12 and verse 41, this is what we read about that text. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. That is, beloved, John is saying there in John chapter 12 that the antecedent subject of Isaiah is Jesus. Second person of the Godhead before his incarnation. The Lord God. The one who is also Yahweh's what? Servant. God's servant. Isaiah 53, 11. The righteous one who is my servant. You, he says to these Jews, have denied the only sinless human being that has ever lived. You denied him. You denied the image of the invisible God and you exchanged him for a murderer. Imagine yourself in that crowd. Imagine yourself as one who called out that day, give us Barabbas. What shall I do with this Jesus who is the Christ? Have him crucified. You called for a violent insurrectionist awaiting execution to be released? To be released among your own people? A guy on death row. You said, yeah, let him go in my neighborhood. That's a great idea. Kill Jesus. I did a funeral yesterday among many unbelievers. And I said, if God came to earth, what would humans do to him? Kill him. Because left to ourselves, we hate God. Now, we'll reinvent God. Well, to me, Jesus is like this. You better get over that if that's the way you think. Quickly. If it's not this God. You called for a murder, notice, in place of verse 15, the prince of life. In other words, you're just like the one you asked for. You're murderers. Okay, that is the prince of life. That is the author of life. You killed the author of life. You called for his death. This one who who creates life, this one, John 1, who spoke the universe into existence, the eternal second person of the Godhead, you called for his murder. But not only is he the author of life, he's the author of resurrection life. You killed him. Death can't hold him. Verse 15, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact, a fact to which we are witnesses. 
Okay, that is having raised him, Jesus, from the dead, that is glorifying him, certifies him as God's only son and only way to heaven. Which, by the way, he never did for Muhammad, Confucius, Buddha, or anybody else. They're all dead. Wherever they're buried, they're still there. Where, whatever ash pit they're in, they're still there. They're all false religious inventors, that is, religions of idolatry. They're dead men. This one, the prince of life, God raised from the dead, validating who he claimed to be. Your Messiah. You murdered him. Very direct, piercing, painful preaching to say the least. Amen? You, 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 guilty, guilty, guilty. <laughs> and we, beloved, by extension, here this morning, are part of the mob who denied, betrayed, and murdered the Prince of Life. Make no mis mistake about that. Until we, like this lame man healed of his lameness, cling to Christ as he is clinging to Peter and John, the messengers of Christ. I think Ryan pointed out to me this morning, I, I think he preached this whole sermon with this guy clinging on to him. It's like, brother, come on. And he's preaching Christ, and this man's clinging to him. Thanks. Never thought about that before. Faith through Jesus is the proper response to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Verse 16. And on the basis of faith in his name, it's the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and you know. You know who he is, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. Faith is at the center of the miracle, beloved. Faith. Witnessed by way of the faith that Peter had in the name of Jesus Christ, the name of a bald name. He didn't say, in, you know, in my presence and in my power, get up and walk. He said, in the name of Jesus Christ, get up. And then he pulled him up by the hand, and he began to leap for joy. And then you see faith birthed in this man because in response to the name above all names and the power of that name in and through this man, he begins to walk and leap and, verse 8, praise God. The proper response for anyone who's truly saved. Continual praise. Nothing worse than a sour Christian. Yeah. Everything's sour. May we repent. And now, brethren, verse 17, I know that you acted in ignorance. Wow. Just as your rulers did also. 
But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of those prophets, that Christ would suffer, he had to suffer, has thus, it's all been fulfilled. I mean, that, that's a remarkable statement. You acted in, in ignorance. They, they didn't really understand what they were doing in Jerusalem on that day when they called for a murderer in exchange for the Son of God. The one you put to death. Paul emphasizes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8. He says, none of the rulers of this age understood, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, make no mistake about it, beloved. Um, there is a progression in redemptive history that unfolds throughout the scriptures and it's all fulfilled in Christ. Therefore, no one is able on the last day to claim ignorance. That's what agnostics are hoping for. Agnosticism means, well, we, just, we, we really can't know. Oh, yes, you can. You don't want to know. The Latin translation of agnostic is... Ignoramus. Although their plea may be, oh God, had, had you just made yourself known to me personally, had you just, you know, performed a couple miracles, maybe a little more sufficient data, then I would have believed. No excuse. Because mankind's sin, mankind's sin, is not that we don't know or that we can't know. It is that we refuse to know. Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who do what? They suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident where? Within them. God made it evident to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. That's called general revelation. But oh, the danger for those, oh, the danger for those before whom the Holy Spirit has convinced and convicted uh, Jesus' Jesus's true identity, who, who, who believe intellectually, who, who give intellectual assent to the fact that Jesus was a tr really a man. Uh, he fulfilled everything that the prophets declared about the Christ. I do believe he came. Um, I do believe um, he, he, he died. Um, I believe he even raised um, again from the dead, but then they vainly begin to recreate in their own mind something else. Because of the pressure of culture, perhaps. They begin to say, wow, this, this is heavy. I mean, it, it can't be possible that he's the only way. I didn't say that they were regenerate and now we're apostate. I'm saying that they once professed and confessed this truth, and they've turned their back from this truth. Oh, the danger. Much greater judgment for them than the Romans one people. And all of a sudden, you'd start to think that, you start to consider, ah, 
I can't believe Jesus is the only way to God. I do believe he's just one guru among many. Um, He's the mightiest, no doubt. I'll, I'll give him that. But he's one who served just to provide a little bit more revelation of God through all these other prophets. And so long as you believe in one of those ways, you're gonna make it in. Beware. Professing Christian. I know people who profess to be Christian who believe what I just described. You're not a Christian. Repent. Next, the demand. How do we rightly interpret the Bible? First lesson. Second, the indictment of the crowd standing there on this day. Next to the demand, verse 18. So then, those things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return, that is, believe, so that your sins may be wiped away. In other words, friends, neither ignorance nor God's predetermined announcement of God's suffering that God foreordained all this stuff regarding the suffering of Jesus Christ. He preordained it. He made it happen. None of that will exonerate them. So therefore, they must repent and believe. Return, repentance and faith. It's what Thomas Watson referred to as the two wings of a bird whereby we fly into heaven. Repentance, faith. You need both to get into heaven. Repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away. See, to repent is to believe, and to believe is to repent. You don't believe if you've never repented. How? Love this. Colossians 2, verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions, he made you alive. Who made you alive? Did you wake up and make yourself alive? No. He made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. The cross. Blotted out, sins remembered what? No more. Isn't that why we're here this morning? I hope that's why you're here. That's why we gather. Because we've been forgiven by way of Jesus being nailed to the cross. The only way sins are ever erased is if we humble ourselves and repent, turn from our sins, turning unto God in Christ with a broken and contrite heart. That's proof you've been born again. You don't do that to get born again. That's proof that you have been born from above. That's spirit-led grace. And as he commands it, as God's grace is at work in their lives, we will see how many repent. Next time. Friends, forgiveness from God is not automatic. 
A lot of people believe that you get to heaven by dying. You're just justified by death. Well, how do you get to heaven? Well, you die. Wrong. It's appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. Judgment. People think that God's forgiveness is unconditional. It's not unconditional. He can't just sweep our dirt under his rug. His forgiveness is conditioned upon faith and trust in his son. Those who come to faith in Christ are unconditionally forgiven. So we don't speak of unconditional forgiveness in a universal sense. You just die and, well, you go to heaven. After all, all dogs go to heaven. No. It's faith and trust through Jesus Christ because God's holiness demands what? Justice. And his justice was satisfied when he, God the Father, crushed, Isaiah 53, his servant, Jesus. Propitiation was made. Satisfaction, God's wrath, provided in Christ. The only ones who are justified before God are those who have been granted faith and trust in God's only provision, his one and only son, Jesus. You know, it frightens me that there are people who attend church for years who sing the songs. They listen to the messages. They recite the creeds, yet they've never experienced repentance and the blotting out of their sins. They're unconverted church attenders as was Charles Wesley, we heard about, attended church, unconverted for years. Never brought to repentance and saving faith in Christ alone. Verse 19 talks about times of refreshing. Comes only from the presence of the Lord. You experience this, Christian. If you're in Christ, you experience these times of refreshing, and that is the conscious awareness of God's presence in your life, i.e., Holy Spirit. He refreshes us. Hopefully, he's refreshing us today. We're about to get to the good news in just a minute. Verse 20, that he may send Jesus, that he's still preaching, that the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Christ has ascended. Heaven had to receive Jesus. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Heaven had to receive the the, the man, uh, the God-man, Jesus. The Son of Man. And he will come again and restore heaven and earth in his second coming. And ignorance, he says, will not serve as an excuse on that day. Notice next, Christ alone is the promised Messiah, verse 22. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And he's quoting there, as we read from this morning, Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, establishing Jesus as this one, as this prophet, long ago promised. And then he quotes Deuteronomy 18, 19. Notice, there's the warning. Here's the danger of rejecting him. Verse 23. And it will be that every soul 
that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. In other words, those who do not heed the message of this prophet are doomed. Friends, that's the message of Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. Right there. Give heed to everything he says, Moses prophesied. Listen to him. If you don't, your sins will not be erased. They will not. You know, when I declare that truth to unbelievers, I, I, I did two funerals in the last week. That's why this is fresh on my mind. I look out among the people, when you declare that truth, and you see rage, anger, hostility. If they could, they would, like that woman who wanted to punch Wesley out, they would do that if they could. Let alone some of the comments you receive afterwards. I'm telling you, the grace we have in Christ to believe this, friends, that we're here gathered this morning because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, that you even believe that, to have gotten up this morning and wanted to come to church, that's a grace gift, man. <laughs> People rolled their eyes yesterday, literally. And I actually said in the message, didn't I say something like, you can roll your eyes all you want. You can yawn all you want. See, bottom line, you're not going to stand before me on the last day. You're going to stand before him, and you're going to be ruined eternally. So listen to him. That's the message. And likewise, verse 24, and likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announced these days. You know this miracle you see about this lame man? bursting forth, as Isaiah also prophesied in Isaiah 35, this is the day, this is the time. Verse 25, it is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That is, God has one plan for salva of salvation for all the nations. It's the only plan he's ever had. No plan be necessary. The new covenant age had begun at Pentecost, just days or weeks before this. He's preaching. He's bringing it. Just love this. I, loved, I love preachers who preach. I could sit for hours and just listen. Notice verse 26. For you, you Jews out here in the temple, for you first, for you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. In other words, the savior of the world, you Jews in the temple courts this day, he was sent to you first. First. As promised. And let me say this. Those first in salvation opportunity also means first in judgment responsibility. The more you know, the more you're accountable for. Same is true to this day. All y'all who sit in church all your life, children, I love you all. As you listen to truth about Jesus, you're going to get older. You're going to get older, and you're going to have friends out there who are going to say, don't believe in Jesus, that's silly. And I'm telling you now, what you want to do is pray to God to help you now that when you grow up, you get older, and you have those kind of friends, pray now, God, give me strength that I'll always trust you. 
Amen? Because it will happen. I guarantee it. You have been given first opportunity at a very young age to accept Jesus as your Savior. And I'd encourage you to accept him as your Savior today if you haven't. To believe. There's Peter's sermon. Question. How does Peter end his sermon? On a positive or negative note? Yes. No? Both. Both. Depending on the response to the gospel. There's a solemn warning right there, and and a great hope is offered. A great hope. This is a warning that runs consistently throughout the New Testament. What are you going to do with Jesus called the Christ? That's the question. See, as Peter preaches this, he's providing them the opportunity, all of the indicting, you, 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 guilty, 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 that's all for the opportunity of repentance before the living God. Do you remember the man who stood at the foot of the cross, the centurion who oversaw the execution squad of Jesus, who, who actually nailed his hands and feet? Do you remember? That was his job to see to it that his team crucified Jesus. And when darkness descended upon the land and there was a great earthquake, that man stood at the foot of the cross and said, what? Surely this was the son of God. That's faith. That's faith. If he can be forgiven, these people who called for the crucifixion of Jesus can be forgiven. That's the point of his message. That's the purpose of the indictment. Seek forgiveness in the only place it can be found, in the one you crucified. Listen to this warning as I'm wrapping up. Hebrews chapter 10, in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. You can't encourage one another if you're not here. Now he continues, notice, he continues speaking to professing believers, and he continues here to speak about willful, deliberate sins after hearing the unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. The willful sin he's talking about? Hey, do we all sin? Yeah. Yeah, we all still sin. The willful sin he's speaking about is renunciation of the faith after being enlightened to it. Faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's the, that's the willful sin. The renunciation of faith in Christ alone. This is not teaching that God's elect 
can lose their salvation. Amen? Those who commit a final denial of Jesus Christ after having been enlightened to gospel truth never really place their faith in him in the first place. If you can walk away, you never were. That means it is possible to come to a knowledge of Christ apart from faith in Christ. This is abandoning the confession of verse 23. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without what? Wavering. Some people who profess Christ abandon the confession of Christ. They try to reform God in their own image and they build their own confession. To me, Jesus is fill in the blank and he's anything but what scripture declares him to be. Because after all, being the only way to the Father, that's politically incorrect. I reject that. Danger. And then, of course, there's those who sit in church week after week, dead in their transgressions and sins, and they refuse to bow before this king. That's for the unbeliever. Now for the believer. As I wrap up, in preparation for the table. For the, the Christian, again, as Spurgeon asked at the outset of the sermon, are there things in your life that you exchange for Christ? Now, although we haven't exchanged... <laughs> a murderer for Christ, we must continually ask, am I exchanging other things for Christ where he becomes a distant second to everything else? And again, it could be our affections, our time, our, our resources. Uh, perhaps we're given to laziness in exchange for Christ our career in place of Christ, our recreation in place of Christ, people in place of Christ, myself in place of Christ, where he becomes a distant second. This is the applicable part for us. Because remember, the people in Hebrews 10 began to slide away having given up meeting together. They stopped coming to church. They started to slide. Now, they probably started out rather consistently. And then all of a sudden, their attendance was hit and miss. They returned for a season, disappear again, slowly but surely, more and more. Eventually, they stopped coming, having exchanged something or someone for Christ. That's the danger. That's what Hebrews is all about. A warning to us, which is really the only warning it is to us because we're in Christ. So therefore, the author, of, the author of Hebrews will say, Christian, here. There's only one solution to that. You need a solution? Here it is. Fix your eyes back upon Jesus. Chapter 12. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter, we've already heard this, Peter's sermon, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Which means, believer, our thinking, our minds must be aligned and routinely realigned to the mind of 
Christ because you are saved. Because you haven't apostatized. Locus of focus, our eyes on Christ. Amen? Now next week, Lord willing, we will see the response to this sermon. Peter's sermon, the response. And just like every time the gospel is preached accurately, there will be division. The last thing I wanted yesterday was for everyone to be pleased with the message, unless there was great repentance and a falling down before Jesus Christ. Because for any unbeliever to say, great message, you didn't preach the gospel. Period. So on this day, we're going to see a flood of people who fled to the gospel. They embraced Jesus Christ, had their sins forgiven, while another group, the ever-religious Jews, were greatly annoyed, deeply disturbed, and they had Peter and John thrown into prison. The cost of discipleship. That is Peter's second sermon. Amen? Let us prepare for the Lord's table. Lord, we thank you for the finished work of your son, our Lord, who came and lived, died, was raised, ascended to your right hand, who has received all power and authority in heaven and earth below. And as we are here to make disciples, Lord, I pray um, that our congregation will remember it's not the shepherd's job um, to produce sheep, it's healthy sheep who beget sheep. So help them, help us to be equipped with this truth to be ready in season and out, uh, always to be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within us with gentleness and respect, to see an outpouring of your Holy Spirit and harvest of souls. But may we, uh, before we focus on that, be reminded of what's been accomplished for us as we come to the table together. In Christ's name, amen.